Matthew 26. We're gonna look at verses one through 16 this morning. The topic, Jesus praises a woman whom the disciples accuse of wasting a precious resource. The title of our uh, message, Waste Management. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here, and really it's a, a privilege as well. We have your word, we're able to open it. We can read it in, gosh, a hundred different versions. Your Holy Spirit is here to help teach it, Lord, and to bring it to our hearts. You're able to speak to our spirit in a way that no one else can, and to reveal your love to us and your grace upon us and your forgiveness of our sins. You can even convict sinners, Lord, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come, and they can become saved and born again today. They can know that they have eternal life. Do all that and more, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. In a classic round of verbal sparring, Rocky Balboa wanted to know why trainer Mickey Goldmill treated him so disparagingly. Here is their on-screen exchange. Now, I asked first service this, I'll ask you. Do you want me to do it with voices or without voices? Oh, man. You know, I've been coming here for six years, and for six years you've been sticking it to me. I want to know how come. You don't want to know. Yeah, I want to know. You want to know? I want to know. Okay, I'll tell you. Because you have the talent to become a good fighter, and instead you become a leg breaker for some cheap second-rate loan shark. It's a living. It's a waste of life. Thank you. First of all, those aren't very good voices, but after first service, somebody said, man, did you practice that? I go, no, that's my family. But anyway. <laughs> I think we give that round to Mickey. Rocky was definitely wasting his life. But on what planet would we think that a washed up two-bit fighter turned trainer of third-rate boxers wasn't also wasting his life? Which begs the question, what constitutes a wasted life? That's an incredible question, if for no other reason than this. I don't want to get to the end of my life, look back over it, and see that it's been wasted. None of us do. Our text in Matthew 26 can help us answer the question of what constitutes a wasted life. A woman will break a costly alabaster jar of fragrant ointment on Jesus, causing his disciples to say to him, why this waste? Jesus will come to her defense, letting the guys and us know that what they deemed a waste, he received as a work that deserved recognition and reward. Let's look at our own lives in terms of waste versus work. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, look at your life and ask, why this waste? And number two, look at your life and ask, why this work? Let's take a look at waste first, or what appears to be waste, in the opening verses. Now the religious leaders of Israel would reject Jesus as their promised Messiah. As a result, the kingdom of heaven on the earth that the Messiah would establish would be postponed until his second coming. Jesus had been predicting his death at the hands of the religious leaders. The time for him to die was at hand. In fact, it's Tuesday of what we call Passion Week when these events are taking place. And so verse one, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples. Uh, Jesus had just finished his talk on the Mount of Olives about the future of the nation of Israel and about his second coming to them. 
This word finished also indicated he was done with his formal teaching ministry to the nation. He was being rejected and the hearts of the religious leaders were set against him. There was nothing more he could say to them. Something precious about the grace of God, however, although Jesus was finished, after he rose from the dead, he sent his disciples right back to these same religious leaders to preach the gospel. And so just when we think there's no hope for a person, the Lord can open their hearts, can convict them of their sin, and bring them to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The only time hope is lost is when life is lost. And so if there's somebody that you've been praying for, it doesn't look like they're gonna get saved anytime soon, trust the Lord and don't give up. Verse two, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Crucified, really? That's a Roman punishment, not a Jewish one. Yet Jesus was confident his death would be a shameful death on the cross. Verse three, then the chief priests, the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now I read all that together because Matthew meant to emphasize something important. Jesus said he'd be delivered up to, the, to be crucified on Passover. The religious leaders who seemed to be the ones doing the delivering were committed to taking no action until after Passover, fearing the crowds with whom Jesus was popular. Matthew's letting us know that Jesus was confident that the events of his death would unfold just as they were prophesied in scripture. God's providence would see to it that without violating anyone's free will, Jesus would die by crucifixion on Passover rather than after it. Now you might or might not know that there are different timelines for the events of the final week of the life of Jesus. Whatever timeline you prefer, know this, Jesus had to be killed as the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. It had to be so because as John the Baptist had three years earlier proclaimed, Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The penalty for sin is death. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God came to them after their sin and he slaughtered an animal to provide them a temporary covering for their sin. God told them in the day you do this, you're gonna die. They died spiritually, they began to die physically, they would have died eternally. God says, I can cover for your death through the death of an animal, temporarily. And then God said that he would be coming and that would be the permanent solution for the problem of sin. Lots going on in Genesis chapter three. The permanent solution would be his own death as a man in our place on the cross. We're not actually told that God offered a lamb in the Garden of Eden, but the son of Adam and Eve, Abel, who learned sacrifice from his parents, offered lambs, and so did all the patriarchs and the priests after him. Every lamb that was slain, millions of them over a period of some 4,000 years, pointed ahead to the one final sacrifice of God himself as a man, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Caiaphas, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of Israel were the recognized political and spiritual leaders. They had positions of power and authority. They were well off. 
They traveled in the best social circles. They dressed nice. They had all the most modern conveniences. Their lives seemed to make a difference in daily Jewish society. They were the, the deal makers and the decision makers. From a purely physical perspective, these were the guys. But there's no such thing as a purely physical perspective. They were plotting to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. They feared the crowd rather than their creator. For a variety of reasons, they preferred their own relatively comfortable life in an occupied Israel over the promised kingdom of heaven on the earth. It just shows you how carnal the heart can be. Even if you know very little about the kingdom of heaven on earth, just the sound of it has got to be better than a Roman occupation of your homeland. And these guys rejected all that God would have done and all that Jesus would have been to them in that kingdom of heaven on the earth to hold on to their power, to keep their position so that they could pursue their puny life on earth. We would say they wasted their position and their power and their possession on pursuits that were not just empty, but that were actually evil. And so these guys are an extreme example of wasted lives. Don't let that keep you, however, from examining your own life. Just because they're so much more extreme than we can imagine, this is a text in which we want to examine ourselves. We aren't the ones who crucified Jesus to preserve wasted lives, but neither was he crucified so that we could live wasted lives. There's a little poem I recite every now and then that I think captures what I'm trying to say. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so do you hold some position, maybe in your family or in society? Do you have power over anyone? And before you say no, you probably do. Parents have power over their children. Employers have a certain power over their employees, etc. Your possessions and your pursuits, are they a waste in the long run? Now these are questions that only you can answer for yourself. I can answer for you and, and I you know, tell you what I think, but it's between you and the Lord. And you shouldn't take any unnecessary burden upon yourself. But we, every now and then we need to examine ourselves and, because I don't wanna get to the end of my life and find that any of it was wasted. I, I want to invest all that I can especially now that the time is short. Now let's jump ahead to the most wasted life of all in our text, it's Judas. In verse 14 it says, one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and he said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver, so from that time he sought an opportunity to betray him. I don't normally skip ahead, but in this case these verses are out of chronological order. Verses one through five, and verses 14 through 16 all take place on Tuesday of Jesus' last week on earth. The dinner that is described in verses six through 13 took place before this, even before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so they are a flashback that Matthew inserts in the text. Judas Iscariot is an incredibly complex character in the Bible. Listen to this summary by Warren Wiersbe. Judas is a tragic figure. He was called to be one of Christ's disciples. He was named an apostle along with the others. He received power to heal, and he probably used this power. It's not the power to do miracles that is proof of your salvation, but obedience to God's word. In spite of his affiliation with the band of disciples, his association with Christ, Judas was never a true believer. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he made it clear that one of them was not cleansed. 
Like many professing Christians today, Judas was in the group of believers, but he was not one of them. Now, Jesus called Judas the son of perdition. That's in John 17. It literally could be translated the son of waste, and it fits our uh, theme very well here. For three and a half years, Judas heard Jesus teach, saw him perform miracles, witnessed absolutely incredible things. I mean, people would say of Jesus, no one has ever taught the way this man teaches with authority. And just, just the few miracles that we have in the Bible are enough to blow anybody's mind and validate the fact that he is the Messiah. And yet Judas not only didn't get saved, but we find that he got all the more hardened to the point that he is willing to betray Jesus when he begins to realize it seems that there is not going to be a kingdom and he's not going to have a position in it. Oh, the hardness of the human heart. You know, a lot of people say, oh, if I could just see a miracle or if God would just do this miracle, then my loved one would get saved. Three and a half years living with Jesus Christ on the earth, listening to him teach, watching him, in his perfect life, healing and blessing and casting out demons. And at the end, Judas said, I'll take the 30 pieces of silver because the kingdom's not gonna come and I've gotta get something out of this. What a hard heart. It's popular in extra biblical literature to sympathize with Judas, making him a misunderstood hero. The first time I encountered this was in the rock musical, Jesus Christ Superstar where he's made into some kind of an anti-hero. The idea is that Judas wanted to force Jesus into action, thinking that if he s pretended to deliver him to the religious leaders, Jesus would have to go into the phone booth, I guess, and prove that he was Superman and he would take over the world. Uh, none of that's true. Jesus was not a, Judas was not a hero. A non-believer, Judas was influenced by Satan, then he was possessed by Satan. He wasn't misunderstood. None of what we read about him takes away his personal responsibility to accept Jesus. In fact, Jesus gave Judas many genuine opportunities to be saved. I don't think it's going too far, however, to suggest that Judas is a warning to non-believers and especially ones who have some knowledge of Jesus and the gospel of salvation. His life was supremely wasted, ending not just in suicide, but in being separated from God for eternity in Hades, and then later, he'll be in the lake of fire. And, and so the average, you know, I'm not saying the average non-believer is a Judas, but the end is gonna be the same. You hear the gospel, you read about the miracles, you see in the lives of your friends and family who are Christians, genuine transformation, which is a miracle, and you continue to reject Jesus Christ, and you're literally, I guess you're selling him out for something else that you prefer. There's something keeping you from coming to Christ, something worth 30 pieces of silver in the long run, something that you're going to regret. Come to the Lord, know the Lord. Now, no matter your achievements in this life, no matter the relative good you do to and for others, if you gain the whole world but lose your soul, you have wasted your life. Let's face it, most of the world's heroes and heroines lived or are currently living wasted lives, at least from the standpoint of God's final judgment upon them in eternity, if they're not Christians. There are a lot of great inventions and great things that have happened in the human race, I mean, from our point of view. I mean, electricity, don't you love electricity? It, it's cool. Um, uh, the internal combustion engine, I know it's polluting the planet, but man, what a great invention. 
I mean, to be, to be able, and, and, you know, airplanes. I mean, to be able to go to Columbia, you know, instead of me telling you, well, the boys are in L.A. now on donkeys, and, you know, <laughs> in six months, they're going to be on a, the Mayflower going to Columbia, you know. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff. But in the long run, and, I mean, from the point of view of eternity, did you, do you realize there's not going to be any electricity in heaven? Do you ever think about that? Sorry, electricians, you're going to have to find something else to do. No motors in heaven, as far as I can tell. People will just be able to go wherever they want immediately faster than the high-speed rail. Uh, no airplanes. You'll be able to fly. So none of what we would look at and say, look at what man has done. In fact, God said at one point, he says, we had to confuse their language because they, anything they put their mind to, they're able to do. But what does it matter in eternity? We won't need or have any of that. We'll be with the Lord in this amazing environment. And so without the Lord, your achievements are nothing, they're nil. You need to know the Lord. Now we like to think that when non-believers stand before the great white throne for their final judgment, that their entire lives are gonna be played back before them. I can only hope my life is not played back before me. I can't say that is true with any certainty of non-believers, but I think if that happens, I think an appropriate comment once the real ends would be to look at them and say, why this waste when I gave you so many opportunities to be saved, to find the good works that I had before ordained that you should perform so that you could make a real difference in the lives of other people and in the eternity of other people. Why this waste of your life? Without Jesus Christ, without having a personal relationship with him, without having your sins forgiven by him and having his righteousness imputed to you, the best that can be said of your life at the end is why this waste? Now let's shift gears and say why this work? Verses six through 13. I can't say, obviously, why Matthew chose to insert the story of Jesus' anointing at a dinner in Bethany in the middle of these verses, but I'm super grateful that he did. They're like a refreshing drink of living water in the midst of the darkness and deceit of those working to betray and kill the Lord, including one of his closest companions. And so in verse six, when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, so he begins this flashback, now, the very fact that so many people were eating a meal at his house, there's at least 17 people attending, tells us that Simon was a former leper. Otherwise, all of them would be rendered ceremonially unclean. They wouldn't be able to celebrate the upcoming Passover. The 12 disciples, Simon, Jesus, and then John the Apostle tells us in his gospel, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were all there, so that's how I get to 17. Besides, can you imagine Jesus encountering a leper and not healing him or her? Simon kept this designation, I say, as a witnessing talking point. People would introduce him or he would introduce himself as Simon the leper. Can you imagine that in that society? Hi, I'm Simon the leper. Ah! Oh no, you don't understand. I no longer have leprosy. What, how, what happened? I met Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, and he healed me of my leprosy. Do you know Jesus Christ? What a great witness. You know, you're looking for a hook to hook people. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Simon the leper. And man, I mean, you, really? Yeah. Now, I often suggest that we would think of nicknames like that for ourselves. No one's ever done it, but I'm gonna keep on suggesting it because I think it'd be fun. Or maybe we should nickname each other. I was thinking first service, we could get panels of three people together and look at a person and say, what, what would you call Gene? 
you know, and, and so, but I, I guess it wouldn't catch on. My nickname right now would be Gene the High-Functioning Sociopath. Uh, <laughs> if you knew me in my former life before I was a Christian, um, I think that was pretty apropos. And uh, so what happened to you? Well, Jesus happened to me. And so some of you would have great nicknames if you would just go for it. Verse seven, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. In the Gospel of John, we're told the woman was Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus, same Lazarus who had recently been raised from the dead by Jesus. Getting uh, back into verse seven, from putting all the accounts in the Gospel together, we know that this fragrant oil was nard or it's called spike nard. It was from India, incredibly costly, Estimated that it would be at worth at least a year's wages. Scholars suggest it may have been Mary's dowry. Why did she pour it on Jesus? Well, it was the most costly thing she had in her possession, and he was the most precious person in her life. Those things just seemed to intersect in her mind and in her heart. Jesus is going to tell us in a moment exactly why Mary broke the alabaster jar and anointed him. Mary may not have realized the symbolism, however. She may simply have been led to do it from love for the Lord. God is not obligated to explain to us the significance of our obedience. You know, when, you, when you're raising children, they just need to obey, right? Do you have to explain to them why they should obey? Well, that's a spankable offense right there by itself. They need to obey because it's good for them and it's right for them and it's the right... God doesn't need to explain to us why we need to obey. His leading is enough. We obey, we leave any further significance to him. Obedience is its own reward. And that's harder than you might imagine to hang on to in an age in which we think everything must have a greater significance in order to be uh, valuable. I often think suffering, for example, must result in something greater in order to be valuable. And so people, uh, you know, forgive me, I don't mean to offend anybody in particular, I'm sure some of this is spirit-led, but people go through something and then they establish a fund or they establish a foundation. And some of those are good, but I have to believe that not everybody who has suffering has to have a fund or has to have a foundation. Because what it does is says, I suffered so this could happen. And if this didn't happen, if this doesn't happen, then my suffering has no value. And the truth is, the Lord said in the world, you'll have tribulation, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. He says he'll be with us in our suffering and walk with us. It has its own intrinsic value if it's done as unto the Lord. If something more comes out of it, great. But nothing else needs to come out of obedience other than you give delight to your Father's heart. Verse eight, when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? This fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Now, it was customary at Passover to give alms to the poor. From that perspective, most people would agree that Mary ought not to have wasted the oil by pouring it out upon Jesus when its sale could have helped so many. People are always quick to point out waste or what they believe to be waste. We just got done with the ALS bucket challenge. No one would deny the amount of positive awareness the viral ice bucket challenge has raised for ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, but some are now criticizing it for wasting water, especially in drought-stricken areas like California. 
Now, wait a minute. Without taking sides, they might have an arguable point. By conservative calculations, over six million gallons of water have been poured out. The average American household uses 320 gallons a day, which means that based on their estimation, the use, uh, nearly 19,000 homes daily water usage has been wasted in a time when some cities don't have running water anymore. I'm not for or against the ice bucket challenge. It's an illustration of the fact that people look at things and they say, hey, that's a waste. They looked at this pouring out of the oil and they said, that's a waste. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. You'd think after three and a half years, these guys would learn to just be quiet. To not have opinions until they understood what the Lord was thinking. I mean, you don't want to be with Jesus at dinner and have him look at you and, and start a conversation by saying, why trouble the woman? I mean, you know you've blown it now at this point, and you don't know how bad, but he's gonna go all out. Jesus comes to her defense. I love it. If you're following God's leading, if you've heard his voice, as it were, it really doesn't matter what other people say in criticism of your decision and actions. Let me say that in a different way. A different way excuse me. You can't be overly concerned about criticism when you know you're doing what God wants you to do. Now, the truth is, most of us dismiss criticism too soon. We get immediately defensive and we don't learn anything from it. But having said that, the opposite is true as well. Not all criticism is valid. And we can't really say that there is always something positive in every criticism. I know we would like to believe that. People, they think it's mature to say, now, now there's something in every criticism that, that you can learn from. No, there isn't. Some people are just mean and vindictive. And there's nothing that you can learn. They just hate you. And so it, it's a, it's, it's a tightrope. So we want to be open to positive uh, criticism, but we don't want to be crippled by criticism that's not true. But if the Lord has told you to do something in an area like this that involves extreme worship or extravagant worship or however you'd put it, then you just need to step out and do it and not listen to what other people say. If Mary had run this idea past the disciples, she would never have broken the flask. Could you imagine what, if she had come out and said, hey, Judas, you, you keep the money. Here's what I'm thinking about doing. I, I wanna break this alabaster flask on Jesus. That would have never passed muster with the guys. This would have never happened. Now, would it have mattered if verses six through 13 never happened? Would it have mattered? Let me ask you this, would it have affected our salvation? Would it have kept Jesus from going to the cross, dying for our sins, rising from the dead? The answer is no, but you know what? This mattered to Jesus because it brought him joy. In the midst of him saying, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna be crucified, naked, hanging on a cross, in a minute you're gonna find out that he knew he'd be taken off the cross and he'd have to be hastily buried because of the Sabbath. In the middle of all of this prediction and talking about this, this woman, Mary, came out and anointed his body for burial and it brought him great joy. And I mean, he was just, in my family would say he was jazzed. I mean, it was fantastic. And that's what it would have cost. I wonder how much joy we deny Jesus because of the fear of being accused of being too extreme in our work 
and our worship. Verse 11, he says, for you have the poor with you always, but me you don't always have. Jesus' statement about the poor has caused a lot of unnecessary confusion. He wasn't minimizing the plight of the poor, quite the opposite, he was elevating it. He was talking about priorities. They could and should always minister to the poor, but they would only get one shot at anointing his body for burial. He says in verse 12, for in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Again, did Mary know that this was what she was doing? Hard to say, but I say probably not. She was simply following God's leading, offering her best and her all to her Lord, and then the Lord made something incredible out of it. Now after death, the Jews wrapped the body and in between the wrappings placed oil and spices. Jesus seems to be indicating that after his upcoming death, there would be insufficient time to properly anoint his body. Thus anointing him was much more urgent than feeding the poor because you were only gonna get one shot at it. In fact, we know that his body was taken down from the cross hastily and entombed before the Sabbath began. There wasn't enough time to properly anoint him. That's why early the Sunday following that Sabbath, the women came to the tomb to anoint him, but he had already risen from the dead. Verse 13, assuredly I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Now did you catch that? Jesus was confident he would rise from the dead. I know that because he said this gospel is gonna be preached to the whole world. What is the gospel? It's good news. It wouldn't be good news to proclaim that Jesus was dead, now would it? And so Jesus knew that he was gonna die, but he knew he was gonna rise from the dead, and that would be the good news. Nobody goes around and says, hey, I have great news for you, Jesus Christ is dead. So? Oh yeah, I guess that doesn't really help anybody. Oh well, God bless you. No, Jesus said the gospel's gonna be preached. And so this whole thread here, it's mind-blowing how Jesus has complete confidence in his heavenly Father to accomplish what the scriptures predicted centuries earlier when he is going to be held prisoner and put to death. And yet, all of these things are gonna come to pass uh, just as they were predicted. Jesus said Mary would be remembered, memorialized, and here we are today remembering her, memorializing her. Jesus called her deed a good work for me. The disciples called it a waste. What Jesus calls work can never be considered waste no matter how it appears to others. My poor dad never came to grips with my decision to go into full-time Christian work. He considered it a waste of my education, which, to be honest, he paid for and a waste of my life. I'll never forget when I first went into my, it's a long story, but went into my dad's shop, my brothers and my dad all worked there, so my whole family was there except for my mom, and I went in and I told him I had quit my job with the title company, was going into full-time Christian work, and my dad just walked away and had some choice words for me over the years about that while he was alive. So, you know, one, one man's work is another man's waste. If led to do something out of the ordinary, something that might be considered on the surface to be a waste, would we have the spiritual courage to go through with it? Have you ever done something like Mary did? Have you ever given something of yourself or from your substance that was extravagant and seemingly wasted but dedicated to Jesus? Can you think of a time you almost did but you talked yourself out of it or you let others talk you out of it? And let's get down to it. Mary isn't alone in seemingly wasting her life and substance on Jesus. 
all of the guys and gals in the Bible that we look to for uh, examples of the Christian life, at some point or points, they had to do something extreme. They had to do something extravagant. And they thought it was just the most normal thing in the world. Barnabas, for example, comes to mind right now. New Testament church, church is just born, thousands of pilgrims, instead of going back to where they came from, they wanna stay and learn from the disciples about Jesus Christ. And, and I mean, the church, there is no church really, there's no building, there's no funds, there's no deacon's fund, there's nothing. There's just these 120 people, now thousands of people, and so Barnabas steps forward and he says, well, I've got a bunch of property I'll sell and just give all the money to you guys. You figure out what you want to do with it. Wow! Where did that come from? That's the kind of thing we're talking about. Of course, then uh, Ananias and Sapphira say, hey, we want the recognition. Let's sell you know, a piece of property and keep some of the money for ourselves and, and give some to the church and, and we'll get the plaque. And so they do, and Peter says, hey, uh, something's not right here. Bam, bam, one after the other dies, killed by God. Wow. So that's the idea. There, you can't really get through hardly a page of scripture without reading about somebody's extreme worship of the Lord. And so that's got to happen at least once in my life. It's got to happen at least once in your life. I'm not talking about doing something crazy, going out with a sandwich board sign, naked underneath it, proclaiming the end of the world, unless God tells you to do that, but I don't think he will. And that's the idea, people say, oh, you immediately, oh, I, 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 you know, it's extreme enough that I'm a Christian. Well, maybe, maybe not. And so all of us have to ask these questions. Mary isn't alone in wasting her life. It shouldn't be any different for us. The Lord doesn't love us any less and we don't love him any less. So we have to have these encounters. There's an expression people use sometimes when they come to some astonishing discovery. They call it their aha moment. Have you heard that? It was their aha moment. I, I, there was a guy in Shark Tank the other night. That's that show on TV where you pitch an idea or an invention to investors in order to get the capital to take it to the next level. He told them it was an aha moment when he came up with his product. He invested everything in They always ask, what have you put into it? And if you don't say, I put everything into it, my life savings and my whole life, I'm risking it all, then they don't want to have anything to do with it. Shouldn't we be willing to invest everything we are and everything we have for Jesus? In fact, you ought to want to do a work for the Lord that is so extreme and so extravagant that other people have to step back and wonder if it's a waste, but then see that it's not, because it's for the Lord. Why this work? Because Jesus deserves our extreme extravagance. He lavished his love on us. How can we not do the same for him? Let's pray.